And welcome to Into the Mothlight podcast, this time with the occasional writer, film archivist and historian Steve Polta. Steve is also the archivist and artistic director of San Francisco Cinematheque and the co-founder and current curator of Cinematheque's annual Crossroads Film Festival, which takes place 26th to 28th of August at the Grey Area in the Mission District of San Francisco. San Francisco Cinematheque's mission is to cultivate the international field of non-commercial artist-made cinema, inspire aesthetic dialogue among artists, stimulate critical discourse and encourage appreciation of artist-made cinema across the broader cultural landscape. Cinematheque traces its origins to a film screening presented by filmmaker Bruce Bailey in 1961 in a front yard in Canyon, California, a small community hidden in the hills and valleys just east of Oakland. In this episode, we do talk a lot about the avant-garde scene in the San Francisco Bay Area in the mid-1990s, and Steve does mention a lot of artists, films and important people and places. We have links to most of them, plus other points of interest, like the history of Cinematech, on our website at intothemothlight.com. My first question to Steve was about his introduction to experimental film. Into the moth light. Yeah, you know, so for me, it sort of, it, you know, probably grew out of, you know, this probably happens for a lot of people, is that this interest in, you know, so-called experimental film um, grew out of an early interest in, in, just, in just the movies. Do you know what I mean? And I was, I was into film and, you know, when I was about 19 or 20, um, in the early 1990s, I was I was just into um, I was just into film history in general, you know, and I was interested in Hitchcock and Howard Hawks and things like that. And I was into art house people like Bertolucci and Antonioni and, you know, contemporary people like Coen Brothers and this kind of thing. And that's kind of, that was what I, I was kind of into that. And I was into reading um, history books and things. And I would come across references to films that were from outside of that tradition. You know, I remember reading about um, Wavelength at some point, you know, reading an art, reading a, reading a chapter about Wavelength without having seen it or heard of anything like that. So I was aware that there was stuff like that out there that I was, I was curious about. Um and I happened to have a, you know, an important figure in my life um, was a teacher of mine when I was in, I was attending a junior college in Southern California um, called Palomar Junior College in San Marcos in San Diego County. And um, I had a professor there named, uh, named, named Bob Harris, who had just graduated from um, University of San Diego um, and was just kind of kicking around for a year or two before he got, you know, a real job and teaching these junior class, junior college classes. And he had actually been um, a video curator at Anthology Film Archives prior 
to um, being, you know, to, you know, having this encounter. So he kind of, you know, we didn't look at a lot of experimental film, but we looked at a little bit. You know, I learned that Bruce Bailey existed and I learned that Kenneth Anger existed. And I knew that Stan Brackage was a person um, because we used a book called um, Independent Filmmaking by Lenny Lipton that Stan Brackage wrote the introduction to. But I didn't, you know, I hadn't seen his films and I, I kind of was imagining his films to be kind of like John Jost movies or something in the sense that they're kind of independent narrative films that are kind of coming from somewhere else. But I didn't know what they were. And, you know, a year or two after that, I moved to the Bay Area in, in California and uh, enrolled at UC Berkeley and, you know, realized that there were... Um, you know, experimental films curated on a weekly basis at um, Pacific Film Archive, which was about a block from where I was living. And I started going over there and going to shows and pretty quickly decided that this was ve- this was a very interesting, you know, my, my goals in going to college at the time had been to, you know, I have a, my undergraduate degree is in film studies. And I thought I was going to grow up and be a film critic. Um, that was kind of my goal was to to write books about, you know, this, you know, whatever these books I'd been reading, Bertolucci and Coen Brothers and blah, blah, you know, David Lynch and this kind of thing. And um, I thought that seemed like a pretty interesting way to live um, at the time. But, you know, I did discover that, you know, I did start seeing these films at the Pacific Film Archive and um, was very fascinated by them and quickly, you know, quickly, you know, realized that. There were a lot of other sort of film opportunities in the Bay Area. You could go out, if you wanted to put your mind to it, you could see experimental film and video art um, five nights a week. You know, you could go to Cinematech, you could go to PFA, you could go to Craig Baldwin's other cinema, you could go to all these other micro cinema places, and you could see it five nights a week if you wanted to. And that's what I did. You know, um, and a teacher of mine, I should say, at UC Berkeley was Craig Baldwin. Um, the filmmaker Craig Baldwin. And, you know, we immediately had an affinity for each other. And I started attending his programs in 1995. And I started volunteering with him in 1996. And I volunteered and helped him run his shows for the next 17 years. I became, you know, really sort of involved in the Bay Area um, film community um, and got to know a lot of Bay Area filmmakers through um, just kind of going out and, you know, kind of going to screenings, you know, and, um, you know, getting to know people and be like, oh, there's that guy again, you know, and it's, you know, Scott Stark or Greta Snyder or uh, these, these filmmakers like this. And I should also say that, you know, another interest of mine in, you know, so-called experimental film that really piqued my interest back in the day was really quickly realizing that beyond it being like this sort of interesting art genre, there's also this sort of um, very interesting subcultural history to experimental and avant-garde filmmaking that is um, is very interesting to me. You know, beyond the, um, beyond the history of the works and, you know, discourses around the works and historical and academic discourses around the work, which is all really interesting, there's also this subcultural tradition knowing about the lives and relationships of all these people, you know, Maya Darren's relationships with Stan Brackage and, you know, you know, the Markopoulos and Brackage and Kenneth Anger and Jack Smith and Andy Warhol and Jonas Meckes and all this kind of 
interesting and creative and weird and complicated and um you know aggressive and passive aggressive and um and brilliant and loving and angry um people that were involved in this and the the kind of wild lives they lived around this stuff you mentioned um uh to go and uh study how to make film so at what point did you decide to pick up a camera and how much do you think that uh, sort of mid-90s San Francisco scene and the kind of work that you were getting to see um, mm-hmm. informed the, the the work that you went on to make? I guess, you know, I, I always kind of had that as a um, as sort of an ambition, you know, like I was, re- I, I don't know, I was really interested in the idea of being a filmmaker and I had this sort of naive belief that you could just do it you could just make a film with whatever you had you know what i mean and it it feels kind of like you know charming and kind of cute and naive to think back on that but um that was kind of my belief you know filmmaking itself seemed like a way to um get to know it more and to get to understand it i was i was really interested in in machinery, in the machinery of it and the technology of it. And I mean, the physical technology of it. Um, And I liked working with machinery and I liked working with my hands and I liked working with film. You know, the the filmmaker, Brian Fry, um, who was a friend of mine back then actually, has an interesting article in um, a book called Radical Light. Uh, It's a history of the... um, uh, alternative filmmaking in the Bay Area from 1945 to the year 2000. And he writes about the 1990s as being a place where time where filmmakers were back into what um, getting to know what films looked like, as opposed to sort of being the carrier for kind of narratives or sort of personal documentary that he had, you know, that he contrasted with an earlier generation. So that's an interesting perspective that he has. Um, but I can tell you that in the 1990s, um, in the Bay Area, you know, a couple things that were big were um, found footage was really big. And by found footage, I mean, you know, footage that comes from 16 millimeter film and footage that, you know, no, nowadays found footage is, is easy and it's too easy, you know, like taking things from YouTube or taking things, you know, grabbing things from from online sources is like, um, or, you know, prowling or archives or stuff on the Internet Archive is insanely easy to the point that it's kind of um, banal, um, in my opinion. Um, but even though there's lots of great found footage filmmaking, including stuff we see in Crossroads this year. But I should say that in the 1990s, you know, there was there were two Bay Area institutions that really um, facilitated um, found footage filmmaking. And one was Craig Baldwin, who is a, you know, uh, one is an amazing filmmaker who makes amazing, you know, found footage films on his own. You know, Tribulation 99, for example, is the real high watermark, a real high watermark for that kind of filmmaking and um, has a collection of, you know, whatever it is, 33,000 films, I don't know, you know, whatever he, you know, this insanely huge collection of 16 millimeter films that he basically made available to anybody off the street to access and cut up and use. Craig was selling... um, selling strips of film for $2 a shot um, to anybody off the street, you know, and if you wanted to make a film, you could buy this physical material 
of whatever you needed. You know, if you needed somebody pounding a nail or you needed a rocket being launched off or whatever you needed, you know, um, kids in a classroom or whatever, you could go there and you could buy this physical piece of um, film and walk away with it. And it was yours to do whatever you wanted with it. And um, and then, you know, there was also a place called the Film Arts Foundation that was um, supporting um, independent filmmaking. That was kind of a, it was a cooperatively, um, it, was a, it was a filmmaking co-op that had uh, hundreds of members. And, you know, they provided grants and they, um, and, and supported indie filmmaking, documentary filmmaking, but also had a facility that rented out equipment. You know, you could rent a Bolex there. You could go in and rent a Steenbeck editing machine. And they also had an optical printer. And um, optical printing and found footage filmmaking in the Bay Area in the 1990s um, was this thing um, really based on... And and they also taught classes at Film Arts on found footage filmmaking taught by Craig Baldwin or um, optical printing, which was taught by Irina Linebacker a lot of times, or... You know, so there was this really, that was an interest. It, it sounds fascinating. And I think earlier on when you said perhaps a bit um, naive that you can go out and, and make a film, um, I think it's actually probably uh, more punk than being naive. And and I think even now, 20 so years later, people are still, you know, picking up um, Super 8 cameras that, yeah. kind of um, yard sales or whatever, yeah. and people sure. are buying the old stock of Kodachrome or Super 8. People are developing it in buckets and in, in, in a homemade darkroom and, and, and showing it. So I think people are still not relying on any kind of particular infrastructure, anything that costs a lot of money. And I think there still are lots of places where people can share their work. Now, it might be digitalized sure. rather than projected. And so I, I think that's probably punk. And I get a sense that that's still um, quite an important part of the kind of sort of contemporary filmmaking community. That's really, as far as I'm concerned, where it's at right now. I, I, I think, well, I think that's a very interesting thing that's come up in the last time frame you know i'm not i don't know i don't know a decade might be too much but this idea of the um the quote-unquote artist-run film lab um is this international movement in um you know avant-garde filmmaking or personal filmmaking that is um that is very interesting and it you know based on and not just you know not just the home processing of um you know using caffeinol and this sort of thing but this idea, well, I mean, it's a return or, a, you know, it's another manifestation of this interest in the technology that I was talking about. And this interest in this sort of dead technology of quote unquote analog of physical, you know, um, you know, photochemical filmmaking. And, um, you know, you know what I mean? It's one of these things where people have been saying that this is a dead thing for 50 years. Anyway, I think that this this artist-run film lab thing is very interesting and it's very punk. And it, it feels very, I mean, I I have used the term steampunk on it and I've been kind of called out and be like, steampunk. When I was making my films, you know, and processing my own film in the, in the bathroom using you know, the E6 kit and this kind of thing, that was one thing, but I wasn't working at this sort of, um, I wasn't going, I wasn't driving a flatbed truck across the country and unloading um, industrial level processors and driving them back to my warehouse in Milwaukee or whatever and, and setting them up. Do you know what I mean? I wasn't 
you know, scavenging, you know, Oxbury animation stands from um, Hollywood film studios. This is, it's a different level of, I mean, and these collectives that we're talking about, I mean, some are really small, you know what I mean? Some are like one person and they call themselves a collective. And and some of them like, you know, Labor Berlin um, in Berlin is this huge facility or um, La Benabla in, um, in France is also, you know, you know, almost like pro level. Do you know what I mean? It's fascinating to me. And it has this, you know, it has this kind of post-apocalyptic sort of feel to it where it's like this sort of survivalist thing. You know, it's like we're scavenging from the the dead civilization and making something um, new out of it. And I and I, I think it's it's punk for sure. Um, but it's sort of punk at a at a kind of road warrior level or something. Do you know what I mean? And the fact that it's 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 a bunch of collectives. And the fact that these collectives are networking with each other and that they have conferences with each other and they they trade ideas with each other and they help each other with the equipment, it, you know, is very interesting. Into the Moth Light. Into the Moth Light Podcast. In 2010, Cinematech founded Crossroads, an annual mm-hmm. film festival dedicated to the exhibition of contemporary avant-garde film, video and performance work from the international filmmaking community, presented in dialogue with avant-garde film festivals worldwide. And this year, 67 works of film, video and performance by 71 artists representing 18 countries and territories presented in 10 curated programmes. What was it that you wanted to um, achieve by running an annual film festival then, Stephen? What was your kind of manifesto when, when you co-founded Crossroads? Well, I mean, one of the things was that I, I looked around, you know, and I, I we looked around and there was, I mean, I've, I had the idea to do it long before 2010, by the way. And, um, and, you know, and I should just give credit, you know, uh, you know, I had two, there were two other staff members at Cinematech at the time, Jonathan Marlowe and Vanessa O'Neill, who I credit as, uh, as the co-founders of the festival. There were two. I mean, there was one thing was was a was just a funny sort of um, self serving sort of thing is that I felt like um, you know at the time Cinematech you know Cinematech was doing we still do about you know somewhere between thirty five and fifty public programs a year and it was sort of like we'd sort of sunken into the um, into the ambient culture of the Bay Area and it was frustrating to see me uh, to see. You know, every year, you know, in the Bay Area, some new festival comes along and it's going to be this festival or that festival. And it only it maybe only happens one time. You know what I mean? Like like for whatever reason, it doesn't come around again. But there would be all this attention to it, you know, in the in the media and the press and this kind of thing. And I was like, huh, nobody's paying attention to what we're doing. You know, so let's do a festival. Um, So that was one kind of kind of stupid marketing reason for it. But another one was that, you know, um, I felt like it was really interesting to me that I, you know, I was very interested in um, the New York Film Festival's series, um, Views from the Avant-Garde at the time. And I was very interested in 
the Wavelength series at the Toronto International Film Festival. And I was very interested in what the Ann Arbor Film Festival was doing, for example. And I felt like there needed to be something like that in the Bay Area, basically. You know, I felt like I felt like there needed to be I, I mean, first of all, I wanted to see those works and I wanted to and not just those works. It's not like I'm just repeating what I what we see in other festivals. But I wanted I wanted something like that to happen in the Bay Area um, as a way to see work. You know what I mean? And I was at a I we Cinematech was in a position to do that. You know what I mean? And, um, and, and, you know, there is the San Francisco International Film Festival here in San Francisco, and there are other Northern California film festivals. There's one in Mill Valley and, uh, well, there's two. Um, and there's lots of sort of niche film festivals in San Francisco, too, I should say. And there's, you know, there's the Asian American Film Festival and Frameline, which is the gay and lesbian film festival. And, you know, you just go on and on. But um, there wasn't really any place that had a real significant um, showcasing of deliberately avant-garde film work and i felt like you know the bay area deserved it i felt like the filmmaking community in the bay area um deserved that exposure to stuff and i thought it would uh you know elevate the profile of the field for sure and um and as it's come along i feel like um it's really productive to be for there to be a dialogue going on between the the festivals themselves do you know what i mean i think a lot of film festivals have their own accent um you mm-hmm. know for 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 want of a better word so if anyone was to attend um crossroads this year you know what, what would they expect from you know the accent of perhaps the kind of work that would they would see either projected or as part of a expanded cinema performance mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I'm always interested in what the vibes like in the room yeah that's hard for me to say because I'm in it do you know what I mean mm-hmm. um one thing that's really important for me in in curating crossroads is that I'm interested in experientiality I'm interested in experiential cinema I'm interested in film that works um, as a in the experience of viewing in a big way and I mean maybe that sounds I, I mean what I mean by that is when I'm putting the festival together so what I do is that I, I look at I look at you know I, I look at you know a thousand or more films every year for for crossroads I look at a lot. Um, and I, I try to take things in and I try to, you know, I try to judge work on its own terms and I, I try not to be, you know, prescriptive, you know, I never say, oh, this is the theme of the year and I'm going to go looking for work that is about that theme. You know, I try to be responsive to what the works are doing and, and let that sort of guide me. You know, it, when I and when I talk about experientiality, I mean that I'm interested in work that that communicates through, you know, just to say something kind of um, polemical or kind of, you know, make an extreme statement that I'll back away from in a second is that I'm, I'm really interested in film that works um, works physically. I'm interested in work that is about the um, experience of looking at it, 
and I'm interested in work that is um, that is impactful on the nervous system through visuality and um, orality, audio. But I, it's not to say that I'm interested in formalism necessarily, or like uh, only you know pure cinema, Paul Sheritz or something like that. But the idea that um, but there, there is the idea that ideas, um, you know, social ideas or cultural ideas or whatever can be embodied in that experientiality. And that topicality um, can emerge from the experience of watching the films. And rather, you know, and which is to say that, you know, you know, sound and pictures are cool and content is cool too. Um, but, but films that are, that films that are, are foregrounding their, um, their quote unquote aboutness are, are less interesting to me. Um, and about, you know, aboutness is a term, I, I have a, a degree in library science too. And, you know, aboutness is like this idea of like, what is your book about? What is your thing about? You know what I mean? And then you, and um, I'm, 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 I'm interested in works that are engaging with, you know, cultural ideas that are, that are, that embody them in this experiential aspect. And, um, and, all, and to this experientiality, I, I would add duration is important. Um, so, and I would add that the, the physicality of, um, of cinema space viewing is important. Um, by which I mean the, I mean, it's paradoxical, but by which I mean the attenuation, the consensual attenuation, the, you know, the, the, the consensual, you know, you, you go into the cinema is a, is a sort of, you know, a consensual, you know, a consensual submission to this, this greater force, you know, you're going into this experience, agreeing to attenuate some of your senses and let whatever experience is provided to you happen to you. As opposed to home viewing, where you are, um, you know, you can you can pause. You know, somebody just texted me a minute ago. Do you know what I mean? I could I could pause the video and text my friend back. Do you know what I mean? Um, you can, you know, there's the but there's the kind of unstoppability of it, the and and the durational aspect that's very important. And um, and there's also the scale of, of of cinema viewing. You know, where something is bigger than you. Um, one thing that one, one, one of my major concerns in, um, the contemporary media scape is that we're losing touch with this, uh, experientiality and this physicality and that, that the, the ubiquity of media and the fact that you have access to so much, um, you know, online, and I've done my festivals for two years online now. Um, but you, you, the the idea that there's this access to stuff, and that the the public archive of, of media and the kind of assumption of accessibility kind of leads to a devaluing of it. And um, and uh, you know, and I have two minds to that because I'm you know I'm an archivist and I'm interested in having access to things and I'm interested in historicizing things and I'm interested in scholarship and I'm interested in academics and I, I recognize this all as part of the field but I'm also interested in this experientiality and I try to stay away from work that you know okay 
one thing I've seen, you know, again, over the last decade or so, and I've talked about this elsewhere, is that this is the sort of rise of artist film that deals with um, with the processing of information. Um, and, you know, and this comes back to our, our, our conversation about um, the, the banality of found footage and stuff is that, that you can, you have so much access to footage. And, um, you know, I, I believe, you know, first of all, I believe that artists should do, should follow their muses and follow their inspiration and that, and that, that engaging with ideas and engaging with journalism and engaging with reportage and this sort of thing is something that, um, that artists ought to do if they're, if they're so moved um, to do so. And as a curator, I need to stay on top of that stuff. But there is, you know, I've noticed a trend in, um, in avant-garde festival programming. Um, and it's not like a universal trend and I don't want to point single any, any curators out for it because I don't think it's like a curator necessarily doing this, but I, I'm trying to, you know, what I, with this, the trend I'm seeing is towards films that are about like, I'm going to present on this idea and we're going to show things which are um, pictures on, you know, pictures on screens and, and things that we've, we've taken from, you know, the, so you're, you're in the cinema looking at um, juxtaposed screens, for example, or images taken from laptops or, um, you know, images taken from video games or, you know, you know, media that's, you know, the, the, the filmmaker is playing the video game or surfing the uh, Google Maps or something like that. And and I'm, I've got examples of all that in this year's Crossroads, by the way. So I'm not I'm not saying I'm against that stuff. I'm saying that I'm this experientiality. I I'm trying to pr- put out an exam. I'm trying to put out an example with Crossroads that is counter to that um, or in dialogue with that and and argue for for this kind of filmmaking and this kind of viewership and this kind of experience that, um, you know, in, in the, in the curatorial landscape, you know, and I guess I would say that this is, this, you know, does relate to my, my, you know, quote unquote upbringing in the 1990s and the sort of, these sort of encounters I was having with this very sort of physical cinema and also the sense that the stuff was scarce back then and that that you know if if there was like a you know if there was a Gunver Nelson movie screening at the Pacific Film Archive um you know you had to be there because this could be the only time in your life that that you could see this thing as a curator uh, it's perhaps not fair to ask you to talk about you know specific works but mm-hmm. what are you excited to to share this year and and what are you excited for your audience to experience um this year from the festivals what are the highlights i don't want you know it's hard for me to um play favorites do you know what i mean like i i definitely do not have a i definitely do not have a um a favorite but there must be work that you're really looking forward to seeing projected on a big screen well, sure. I'll tell you one thing that I'm really, um, really, inter- really excited about, and really am glad it's coming together, is um, is the uh, the Friday night program. Um, one one event that we're doing, we're showing a piece by a um, by a Canadian filmmaker, Matteo Holly, from Ottawa City. I believe he's from Ottawa. I believe from Ottawa City. Who um, I wanted to work with back in 2020. Um, and we couldn't do it because we, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic, we had to go online and I had been planning, uh, to work with him on this live piece, 
which is a film video hybrid work that uses an, um, an open flame as a light source. So it's a complicated system, but he um, uses a, a candle, not a, not, a, not, a, not a roaring fire, but a candle um, and makes a video image of the candle and feeds that video signal into a little video projector that he's 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 got a modified 16 millimeter projector that instead of a, a lamp a projection lamp has a video projector in it and projects video out of the projector but run you know is running 16 millimeter film through the projector and and then capturing the output into a different video camera and then sending that into the system so it's sort of a um it's kind of a video feedback system that involves um involves um, a film strip you know involves like a like a fixed image on a film strip and this um this live flame light source that is manipulated um through uh you know through breath by the by the performer so that's really exciting, and I'm really looking forward to that. Um, you know, another highlight is the um, is the centerpiece of the the festival, which is a a rare um, feature length presentation of a film that we're doing. is a, a film called Exhibition, Exhibition Content by Ernst Carroll and um, Veronica Kusumarate, and it is a feature length film that is almost imageless. Um, so it's a 70 some minute film that is about, um, some American ethnographic explanation that happened in, um, in Southeast Asia, uh, that was, um, involved, you know, the filmmaker Robert Gardner was involved with it and the, um, the, the Rockefeller, Michael Rockefeller, um, who was, a you know, a millionaire anthropologist was involved with this and, you know, this sort of, um, anthropological exploration that resulted in the films of Robert Gardner and, and some, some academic uh, ethnographic studies and books of photography and, and very influential in terms of um, visual anthropology, but kind of, but, you know, recognized as being very influential films and very influential arts, but, but also kind of recognized as having a lot of problems in the way that they're sort of misinterpreting the, the lives of the people that they're, they're documenting. And the, the piece is audio recorded from the, um, by these, by these people made into a feature length audio collage that has a lot of field recordings and a lot of um, kind of behind the scenes conversations with the anthropologists and stuff. And it's pretty, I just say it's a pretty, very complicated, very intense, pretty serious critique of the uh, project of visual anthropology. Um, and it's a, it's a 5.1, you know, surround sound, um, you know, audio comp composition that I think is going to sound really good in the space. I only wish that um, Scotland was slightly closer to San Francisco. Otherwise, I would be over there for the duration of the festival. Um, Steve, it's been great to talk to you today about your work. Um, thank you so much for stepping into the Mothlight. Sure. Well, thanks for having me on. It's been really great. Into the Mothlight podcast is sponsored by the Film and Video Poetry Society.
into the Most Like Podcast. Into the Most Like. Into the Most Like.